this week. It is truly the greatest of days as we talk to Alice Lowe, star of the new Take That-themed musical, Greatest Days. Plus, he's Batman. We bring you a Bat-exclusive Bat-Q and Bat-A with Batman himself, the one, the only, Michael Keaton. All that plus usual movie news and nonsense on Movie Podcast that has never knowingly misled Parliament. Never knowingly, anyway. <laughs> I've never even knowingly misled the Marvel Studios Parliament. <laughs> That's very good of you. <laughs> very good of me. Very good of me indeed. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast this week. I'm joined once again by my two colleagues of such a lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara is here, our geek queen. Hello. For the last time. Until the week after next. Until the week after next, yes. yes. Very, yes. very important information. Why is that, Hales Bells? Uh, I am going to Glastonbury next week to work on the Pilton Palais Cinema Tent, um, doing some very cool Q&As with some very cool people, and also, you know, tramping around a field. Tramping around Just a field. Just to be clear, you are glamping at Glastonbury. I am glamping Gla- because... Glastonbing? Glasting? Anyway. Something like that, yes. In the sense that I have access to actual toilets mm. and showers. Yes. And a bed? An actual bed? A, a flat surface at the very least, yes. Mm. I'm very excited. That's very good. Nice. The roof of a caravan. Yes. Are you stand on Michael Evers's? No. <laughs> right. I'm saying in a very small you know, old caravan, judging by previous years, but uh, one that is perfectly functional. So. Is it true, Helen, you will be filling the legend slot? <laughs> yes. Yes, it's me. They must be delighted. I'm opening for <laughs> Elton John. Are you? Okay. Wow. Is it true you're filling Elton John's opening? Hey. Come on now. No. Family show. Family show. Uh, well done, you. Well done. Well done, <laughs> Helen. If you are at Glastow and you're fed up with those people who make that, that loud racket on stage and you want to have some culture injected into your veins, then pop along to see Helen at the Pilton Palais. Pilton. Tell them Chris sent you for a 20% discount. It's it's included in the festival. It's included in the festival price. There we go. <laughs> uh, we're also joined this week by our great big fucking nerve, all 99.3% of him. <laughs> <laughs> It's James Dyer. Hello. Hello, James. Have you ever been to Glastonbury? Will you ever go to Glastonbury? What is a Glastonbury? I hear you say. <laughs> no to all of the above. Uh, who, who is playing at the Glastonbury this year? Uh, Guns N' Roses. Right. Yeah. Elton John. Woo! Cat Stevens, which okay. is pretty mind-blowing. Who do you Good think the, uh, the secret band's going to be? There's a secret band called the Churnups. A secret band to fight inflation. Uh, a secret band. They've, they've, they've been banned together. Um, Nick Fury and the Avengers which would be a great name for a band if you weren't going to be sued by Disney and Marvel. Uh, yeah, apparently there's a band that's on one of the days that's got a pretty decent slot on one of the stages, not the Pilton Palais, mm-hmm. uh, and they're called the Churnups, and no such band exists, and there's a lot of speculation Ooh. that they might be Foo Fighters doing a secret one-off appearance at Glastonbury. Well, they've been there before, obviously, but or it might be Pulp. Wow, on which night did you say? No idea. But okay. uh, what I'm saying is it could be us. <laughs> it could be us On, this is the pyramid stage the Empire Podcast Marvel Studios Fanfare Orchestra is about to make their live debut in front of a hundred thousand people I mean swiftly swiftly fewer than that <laughs> swiftly, I would have thought <laughs> and then chased off <laughs> pursued by glasses of piss <laughs> that would be that'd be amazing that would should we do it should we do it no let's just churn up and see what happens oh boy let's make it happen but hey listen 
If you do want to see us live, oh my <gasps> good giddy aunt. The gods of Segway have spoken and they have anointed me their leader. Uh, yes, we are going to be doing a live show. We're back, back, back. The London Podcast Festival is back, back, back. This September in... Um, London and it is a festival dedicated to podcasts and we do a live show there every year and it's always a ton of fun it is a one-off special unique bespoke podcast that lives just for those who are in the room or those who will be watching it on streaming which I think is possible as well I think you can buy a streaming pass but anyway tickets actual live tickets to see us in the room this year have gone on sale as of today kingsplace.co.uk and the date I hear you ask is September 9th, Saturday, September 9th. It is the evening of Saturday, September 9th. Uh, uh, so, yes, very, very exciting. We are the Elton John, we're the legend slot yeah, at are. the London Podcast Festival, he said, <laughs> <laughs> modestly. Yeah. We're, we're the legend <laughs> slot. Uh, Jimbo, you coming? You going to go to that to be, one? Fair, to be clear, oh. just sorry, Elton John is not a legend. He's a he's a headliner. He is a headliner. Just that, well, we're, we're, head, we're headliners as well. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, I, I will be there, Chris. Of course, the Pilot TV podcast will be there live first on the 19th of August, also at King's Place for a longer and therefore far more value-packed show. Uh, just FYI, 19th of August, once again, my dad's birthday. Helen's birthday. I don't, I don't think as we're invited. Always. I don't think yes. we're invited. No, Helen's dad's coming. He actually asked for me to do this as a birthday present. So. Oh, is he? Yeah. yeah that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Give me something nice for the daughter. <laughs> something nice. I can take her to a nice little treat. Nice little treat. You have literally met my dad. That's not uh, how he exactly, exactly I remember now there was a great, there was a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful festival sort of was. I went along there was a lovely fella, a lovely fella. I said his name was Reginald, Reginald Dwight. Mm, very interesting indeed. I says to him. <laughs> anyway. Anywho, it's like having him in the room. It is, isn't it? It's like he's here. Uh, anyway, so go to buy tickets for to see us. Kingsplace.co.uk. Uh, Jimbo is not part of the London Podcast Festival, but it is episode 250? It is episode 250. You can get that to kingsplace.co.uk slash pilot250. I mean, why would you? I mean, you should. You should. Also, you should. Is, is, Helen's is dad will I... be there. It's going to be great. <laughs> yes, the way things mm. are going, he might be the guest. He will be the guest, 100%. Yeah. Can you get someone from Blue Bloods? I, I would mean, to- I would interview the shit I mean, out of somebody. You will from Blue Bloods. recall there was a Blue Bloods question in the Great Pilot TV Quiz. At the yes, but it was the, show, it was the it. no, I didn't fudge it. it you, was I mean, ridiculous. in that you didn't get it right. It was ridiculous. You know the way Tarantino when he did Movie Mastermind and he got one question wrong, uh-huh. he accused us of a dirty pool he because did. we went as obscure as we could possibly go right. in order to flummox him because mm. he's Quentin Tarantino, so, right? So you think showing a clip obscure. from the title sequence of Blue Bloods was in fact playing dirty? Yes, pool. it was, but it wasn't even just it was like just a random shot. It was like a little bit of B roll from the title sequence yeah. of Blue Bloods and then the trying iconic to iconic title sequence you absolutely you, you <laughs> I mean, motherless but at least at least we don't hold a grudge around here I think that's we the don't key, dirty it? pool man dirty pool <laughs> you know what Never I've changed my mind I've changed my mind do not under any circumstances <laughs> buy tickets to wow. go see Pilot 250. There's going to no, be no cake. Are we going to be Is it going to be a quiz or have you learned uh, your lesson? There isn't going to be a quiz. Roundly spanked by a team. I think empire. you find the Pilot TV emerge victorious from the quiz <laughs> without any form of cheating or interference by the uh, host whatsoever. Uh, there will be cake at the live Pilot podcast. We are going to have a great cake pilot. is a made up drug. It's true. We're going to have a great Pilot bake off, we have decided, as part of the live show where Boyd, Cake, 
Do you know? <laughs> Boyd and Cake. Boyd and Cake. I'm just calling Kay Cake now. Boyd, Kay and I are each going to make a cake. Not and it's on going live on stage, judged. right? You know that King's Place, it's a wonderful venue with many, many wonderful facilities, but it doesn't have the ability to no, make, gonna, to help No, we're going to be like Bake We're going to have a tent and everything. It's going to be brilliant. You're going to pitch a tent live on stage yeah. in front of 250 That's people. That's exactly right, yeah. We're going to have a, well, have a well, live Well, maybe that is something worth buying a ticket for. Bye-bye to another one of his fingers, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so. It's going uh, to be good. I feel we should talk about films. Let's... Talk about films by by having a question, shall sure, we? Sure, let's do it. And uh, I'm going to contradict myself yet again. After doing an unprecedented thing last week where we, for the first time ever, rolled a question over. It was just like the lottery. We rolled a question over from one week into the next, which was, which director won, if Spielberg won the 80s, which director won the 90s, noughties, and 10s? Mm-hmm. And uh, first of all, we took an entire... Uh, question section to discuss who actually won the 80s uh, and then we decided to discuss who won the 90s last week and then I said that's it we're stopping there we're not going to discuss who won the noughties but on my way in I realised I didn't have a question oh, so boy. I've decided that we are going to discuss once again who won the noughties now rules I think are important this director whoever it is has to have at least two movies made and released in the year, the, the period 2000 to 2009, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, ideally, one in both halves. So one made between 2000 and 2005, and then one made between 2006 and 2009, if okay. that makes any sense, or mm-hmm. roughly thereabouts. Uh, that, those, are the, those are the rules. That's basically it. Okay. Those are basically the rules. Well. Uh, and we should also mention that last week in our discussion of who won the 90s, uh, having mentioned Krzysztof Koslowski the week before for the 80s and then realizing that the Three Colors trilogy was actually made in the 90s. We then didn't We then forgot his, to mention yeah, that yeah. he was one of the contenders to win the 90s. Mm. So, yeah. there Oops. we go. So, um, obviously, first of all, uh, Chris Nolan has very much entered the chat. He Chris has. Nolan has entered the building. Mm-hmm. He has indeed. He has indeed. Uh, all right. Talk me through Christopher Nolan's 2000s is naughties. Oh, naughty Nolan. Oh, good Lord. Naughty, naughty. Like that's entirely inappropriate for the man we're talking about, if I'm honest. Okay, well, first of all, you have the the two best uh, installments of the Dark Knight trilogy, don't you? No, well, Memento, I think we start with, don't we? we start- well, okay, I wasn't going like, I was starting thematically, but yes, oh, 2000 fine. Memento, 2002 Insomnia, uh, 2005 Batman Begins, 2006 The Prestige, 2008 The Dark Knight, 2010 Inception, well, which admittedly is over in the tent. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, okay. That's, so that's pretty strong, isn't it? Yeah, that's four, I would say four classics and Insomnia, yes. which is still pretty good. Which is still pretty good. I mean, which is still pretty Batman good. Begins a classic. I think it is. Oh yes, I, 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 I prefer it. Too. Yeah. Oh good God. I know. I'm I love that, it. I'm I love girl. it very much. I think it's. I think half of it is a five star film and half of it is a three star film. But uh, nevertheless. All right. Okay. But it opened the door. It to did a open classic, the door. So to the dark night. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, yeah, that's that's very hard to argue against. Jimbo, are you willing to put anyone up against Chris Nolan? Anyone at all? What oh, a, this is hard. James Cameron, <laughs> who made precisely one film in yes, 2009. What a film. What a film. <laughs> yes, it's the biggest film of all time, so I'm saying he's in with a shout. I'm disqualifying him. How are you disqualifying him? Were you listening when I said out the rules? I mean, no, of course you weren't. No. No, I wasn't. They have to have made a film in each half of the decade. Well, hang on. This is an incredibly arbitrary rule. I mean, it is. Yes. It is. It is which, arbitrary. Which makes no sense. 
But then you have to, you can't win. You can't just swoop in at the last minute, like goal hanger, and uh, then just, you know. I think you find James Cameron can do whatever the fuck he wants. Uh, <laughs> and frequently and, does. And I believe he can come in, unzip, drop the biggest movie of all time, and then <laughs> fuck right off again to go down the Marianas Trench. Uh, I bet not a euphemism. Well, she must have been delighted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm saying, I'm saying, okay, but fine. So we're accepting that James Cameron has won the noughties as well. All right. But, but even if he didn't, uh-huh. you know, QT is still hanging around. QT, all right. Okay, all okay. right. We got what we 2000s got. QT, Kill Bill Volume. Volume one, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Kill Bill Volume Two, <laughs> straight away. I never saw that coming. Follows it up with a banger. <laughs> I mean, Grindhouse, uh, yeah. Death Proof, Death Proof, yeah. Inglorious Bastards. Very good films, all yeah. I would say. But does he? Does it make him win the noughties? I'm not feel so sure. Like he, yeah, it doesn't feel like he thematically or, no. or like morally kind of ruled the decade in the way he did for the. 90s, yeah, he had so. the 90s in the bag, I think, yeah. but I don't think he has the noughties. Um, here's a crazy suggestion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wes Anderson. Okay. Royal Tenenbaums. Mm-hmm. Life Aquatic. Mm-hmm. Darjeeling Limited. Okay, these films are getting progressively worse, but and go on. Fantastic Mr. Fox. These are not progressive. They, they are each, I mean, each, each Royal Tenenbaums. Royal Tenenbaums. Because it's Wes Anderson's look, best film. Yes. It is Wes's best film. I, it's I followed by that. Life Aquatic, which is not his best film. Okay. And then there's the Darjeeling Limited, which is worse than Life Aquatic. But, but worse, is, mean, worse, worse is just... Very relative. Very relative. Yeah. Very relative. And in fact, there's lots of relatives <laughs> in those films. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to say Wes Anderson, but I am going to say... Yes. Peter Jackson. So Peter I, Jackson. Yeah, I'm, with, I'm with you on okay, this. Yeah. I'm with you. I think we can immediately say that, you know, nobody needs... King Kong particularly and they certainly don't need the lovely bones but for the three Lord of the Rings films I think he almost wins it just for that he comes in and he wins he wins the yeah. uh, he wins the the, the ticket the ticket he wins yes. the ticket with um, a lovely bit of Lord of the Rings <laughs> he does yes. he does he fellowship immediately uh, <laughs> by two towers <laughs> <laughs> You're a ridiculous human You're being. But yes, I think worst. he does win that. Much as I'd like to say George Lucas is in with a shout. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure well, even I can. And let's make examine that the evidence, shall we? <laughs> 2002. 2002. He, um, he, well, it's a big old mic drop, isn't it? It's a big old mic drop. He makes the five star classic Attack of the Clones. Then he makes, <laughs> just three years later, Revenge of the Sith. And he was like, you know what, guys? That film is so good, it's going to be my last film as a director. It's been, Maybe it won't be. It's been how long now since 2005? Is that 18 it's years? Been, okay, yes, it's been the the lifetime of a school graduate. But I mean, it's still, he could be, he could come back. He could come back. And I wish he would. I wish he would, quite frankly. Uh, I'd love to see what he would do. But uh, yeah, okay, George Lucas did not win the Naughties. I have a suggestion. Okay. Paul Greengrass. Chris. Chris. Okay, okay. Yep. Okay, so uh, it starts with 2002, Bloody Sunday. Very good. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Yep. Born Supremacy, <laughs> yep. uh, United 93, Born Ultimatum are yep. all noughties. Now, the reason I would make the case for him is not just the quality of those films, quality but also... His hair. His hair. <laughs> He's got- and also the fact that the massive, massive influence yep. that especially Supremacy has had on the action genre since. I mean, I mean, true, but then it's one of these things, was he standing on the shoulders of Doug Lyman? Did he lose points for that? No, because he would have fallen over. <laughs> Doug Lyman has notoriously bad balance. That seems harsh. I'm sure Doug Lyman does lots of yoga and can, you know, stand on one foot all really? day long. Yeah, maybe Helen, or was I Chris Lyman? <gasps> mm, spreading spreading misinformation there about Doug Lyman. We, Just we don't knowingly mislead Parliament, Chris. Jesus. <laughs> oh, shit, I knew it. Uh, yes. Anyway, so I just I just wanted to throw him a out a great a great suggestion a great suggestion. Yeah, I like it. I don't think anything's topping um, 
Nolan, quite frankly, it's, so far. It is hard. I mean, I, I also want to... You and know, Jackson. Just, and Jackson. But yeah. Jackson blots, blots his copybook by making King Kong and then... Hey, I like Lovely King Bones. Kong. The Lovely Bones. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. But I think we can forgive those. Forgive is a very, very strong word. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I don't think Scorsese can really lay claim to the noughties either. Like, much as I would like to say that he could. But I think, you know, Gangs of New York, I've got a soft spot for it, but I may be in the minority. Yeah. The Aviator. The Departed, obviously very strong entry. The but Departed. The Departed. But The uh, Departed is just a lesser version of Infernal, of Infernal yeah, Affairs. Infernal, so. yeah, it's fair. It's fair. That is fair. But it's, you know, it's good. All right. Okay. Yeah. What about uh, Helen's beloved Steven Spielberg? What was his uh, noddies like? His noddies ran thus... AI, artificial yes. AI, artificial intelligence. Can't spell AI without AI. You can't AI. spell AI, AI artificial can't. intelligence without AI. Minority Report. Yes. Uh, catch me if you can. Yes. The Terminal. Okay. War of the Worlds. <laughs> That's happening. Munich. Good Lord. Some sort of fan fiction film called Indiana Jones and the Never Kingdom of the of it, Crystal mate. Skull. Never that's it. That's, it. that's how he rounded it out. He rounded it out. I think that's a strong start. But, but although a lot of people will go to bat for Munich. Yeah, I would. It's but a great film. I'm not, that's not a better filmography than Nolan's. It's for a that decade. pretty great filmography. It's a pretty good filmography. It's a pretty great one. It's fine. Nolan, I, made, I think insomnia. It contains, it Nolan contains... made Insomnia. So we knock out Insomnia and we knock out The Terminal. And then what's left? Gagosia! Yeah, we've knocked that out along Victor with Insomnia. from Gregorja. <laughs> and then we're left with like two Batman and a Prestige versus like Catch Me If You Can, Minority Report and AI. I think that's pretty good for I mean, Spielberg. I think I think like AI, but other than that... Uh, I think both I Batman and Prestige are winning that fight. Uh, it does contain, though, Spielberg's last great film. So that's good. Don't even start with me. <laughs> His last great film was The Fablemans. And before Where's that, you have going? to go all the way back to West Side Story. So don't even. Whew. Yes, yes. Still still have very fond memories of that screening. The pick and mix oh, was Lord. excellent. Uh, <laughs> I have Coen Brothers. Coen Brothers. Coen Brothers. Coen Brothers. Coen Brothers. Yes. Coen Brothers. Oh, oh brother, where are thou? Fantastic. Intolerable cruelty. Brilliant. The Lady Killers. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've had a slight wobble. No country for old men. We're, We're back in the game. We're back in the game. Back in the game. Yes. Burn after reading. Great Yay. film. I love that film. A Serious Man. Ooh, that's oh. pretty great. Okay. That has some that has some, you know, All right. range. That okay. is so oh, oh okay. Go Wong Kar Wai. Oh yeah, hit me. In the Mood for Love was I 2000. always am. Come on. Yes. Yes. Twenty forty six. Oh, that's you know, the wrong year. So good. We got to, that's like thirty six years after the, the naughty Helen. What are you talking about? <laughs> 46 years. I don't know. Oh, boy. Maths was never my strong suit. Um, yeah. So you've just listed my two blue, films well, and no, you've my lost a world nice. to live. I'm going through it. I'm go it's very hard because he's got a lot of like adverts and, you know, um, music videos and stuff. Eros and uh, My Blueberry Nights as well. Look, the point is he made In the Mood for Love and he doesn't really have to do anything else after that. But 2046 is also no, pretty No, no, I'm not having that. I'm not having that. Uh, because in that case, you know, we might as well just uh, allow for James Cameron. All right, I've got a couple. I've got a couple. I'm gonna, I've got a couple. Okay. Edgar Wright yeah, entered I the chat well. in the yeah. 2000s he did. and uh, he made three films in the noughties and they're all pretty fucking crazy as far as I can tell. Shaun of the Dead in yes. 2004, Hot Fuzz, his best yes. film in 2007 and then Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Mm, no, great. wait, that was 2010. <laughs> Disqualified. God damn it. God damn it. I'm so close. Was it 2010? Hang on a second. Wait a minute. Wait a second. Wait a second. This is Wait. Fish. 
Do we count? Don't. Yeah, Scott Pilgrim was 2010. 2010. You... Oh, all right. Okay. So close. Well, still, that's still that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, okay, only two films, but stick oh, with me okay. for Sofia Coppola. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because, yeah. Uh, okay, the the Virgin Suicides just misses like that was ninety nine. Ninety nine. But Lost in Translation. Oh dear. And Marie Antoinette. Yeah, that's a bad start. Oh, and that's an even worse follow up. Lost in Translation is very good. I do you know what she like whispers film. to Bill Murray at the end of the film? Yes. Avatar is a better film. <laughs> so so James Cameron wins. Okay, that was literally two thousand nine. It's barely in the two thousands. Like mm. how? No, James, that's move on. It's truth. Mm. Move that's, on. That's canon. The Noddies might just belong to Stephen Andrew Soderbergh. That's a strong... All right, here we go. Here is Stephen Soderbergh, the incredibly prolific Stephen Soderbergh. All Mm -hmm. right, so there might be a couple of clunkers in here, but I think just the sheer volume more than makes up for that. Mm -hmm. In 2000 alone, he drops both Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. Boom. Okay. 2001, Ocean's Eleven. 2002, full frontal. <laughs> 2002, Solaris. 2004, uh, Ocean's 12, a.k.a. Uh, the best Ocean's movie. 2005, Bubble. Uh, 2006, <laughs> the good German. 2007, he bounces straight back with Ocean's 13. 2008, uh, Shay Part 1 and Shay Part 2. Uh, 2009, The Girlfriend Experience and The Informant. Bish, bash, bosh. Uh, that's that's a soda decade. That is amazing. What a lineup. Good gravy, what a biscuit. Mm. Um, <laughs> I would maybe quibble with a couple of those as all-time greats that define the decade. Didn't say that. I didn't say that. I just said sheer volume alone. He's... Some directors are faffing around doing just one movie. Okay, okay. You're right. He did do a lot. He made 73 movies <laughs> in the audience. And that is a lot. And eight of them on a phone. But, but if we're talking volume, Clint Eastwood also in with a shout. Mm. Also in with a shout. Is that because he whispers a lot? So it is. A joke yes. about his voice. Okay. I mean, look, he starts with Space Cowboys, but we can forgive you him. You did that. this last week. You tried Clint Eastwood last week. By the way, I'm I should say, we cut out a lot of people we last week. And we got called out. I got called out on Twitter numerous times for not mentioning crucial people like David Fincher. I'm like, I fucking we did. did. So we should length. mention David Fincher yeah, and Michael should. Bay and again. You because we cut, cut it them. all out. I had to cut Dreadful it out. I had to get it close to two hours. I had to get it close to two hours. You could have cut out bits with you talking. I should cut out every three or third word. That would never work. Uh, anyway, yes, Clint yes. Eastwood. You, Clint tried, Eastwood. you tried last week right, to get I'm Clint Eastwood. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and crowbar Clint Eastwood onto this list. I mean, it's not really a crowbar, but go ahead. Space Cowboys. Oh Blood- my um, God, <laughs> come on. Are Blood you filtering work. for directing and I mean, not appearances uh, as an actor? Yeah, yeah we're just, we're just okay. going to go with directing. Space Cowboys, Blood Work, Mystic River, mm-hmm. Million Dollar Baby, mm-hmm. Flags of Our Fathers, Oh no. Letters from Iwo Jima, oh, no. Changeling. I mean, they're fine. Yeah, fine. Gran Torino. Yeah. Okay. Invictus, oh. and that's it. But that's quite a few films. Yes, again, it's not just volume that we're going for, though, James, is it? It's also like, hey, I've got a, uh, an offer, um, and that's Hayao Miyazaki. That's oh. not so bad, James. Because he starts the decade with Spirited Away in 2001. He follows it up with the brilliant Hell's Moving Castle in 2004. I fucking love it. And Ponyo was 2008. He's a bit slow. But that's fine. He's he, drawing all the pictures by hand. Not himself. He has but people helping many him. many of them. All right. Just okay. Saying. That's a very, very good shout. But again, I don't know. I think this is one of those ones where we we, we came up with the answer immediately and then spent another <laughs> 15 minutes chasing that's our fair. tails. Um, all right. Fincher and Bay. We talked about them in last week's episode and I cut them out because they, they weren't 
in the conversation properly. They weren't properly in the conversation for owning the 90s. That may seem harsh for the guy who made Seven and Fight Club in the same decade and the guy who made The Rock and Armageddon in the same... Just The Rock alone just wins Bay the 90s, I've just realized. But uh, what was Michael Bay's 2000s Well, they were like? all Transformers films, surely. Like, it's just... It's just no, Transformers the first one was 2007. and that's basically it. First Transformers is 2007. Is it? Yeah. Go on then. Oh God! I thought, okay, I've got on. I've got Fincher ready. So all right, go with Fincher. Go with Fincher. Okay, so Fincher starts the decade with Panic Room. After, Good job. Essentially, three years away after Fight Club. My mm-hmm. goodness. Um, he then uh, follows that up with Zodiac, Zodiac yeah. in two thousand seven. He's beginning to pick up the pace now. Curious Case of Benjamin Button follows in two thousand and eight, and The Social Network just misses out with two thousand ten. All right, so, so he does not, not actually no. owning the decade the, the way we thought he no. would. No. No. I'm going to suggest Guillermo del Toro. Ooh. Because we're on safe territory here because it's the decade before Fishfucker. So there's nothing really to upset me. Uh, the Devil's Backbone. Blade 2. Amazing. Uh, Hellboy. Pan's Labyrinth. And Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. Oh, that's very strong. That is strong. That is a good, good, good shout. It's Nolan. We've wasted a lot of time yeah, and a lot of right. back and forth. Yes. How uh, much of that remains Nolan. in at the end of this? We will have to wait and see. Yeah, it may be a three-minute section where yeah. we just go with Chris Nolan Chris and then Nolan, it. And we just we go, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, let's do the the 10s next week and then we will open it back up for questions uh, after right. that. Uh, congratulations once again to the person who sent in that question, whose name I have sadly <laughs> forgotten. Amazing. Shall we have a guest? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's have Alice Lowe. Alice Lowe, we love Alice Lowe. She is a wonderful actor and writer and director. Her first film as a director was Prevenge, came out a couple of years ago, the one that she made while she was pregnant. Uh, that was tremendous. She also won the stars, of course, of the, the wonderful seminal Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, uh, co-writer and star of Sightseers. Uh, she's switching gears slightly this week for a starring role in the Take That-themed musical, Greatest Days. And uh, this interview is happening right now, right now, as this podcast has been recorded, which is why I am not able to do it. But luckily, I can think of no one better for this gig than Evolution of Horror host Mike Munzer. (laughs) (laughs) So I've no idea how it went, but I'm sure it will be fantastic. Here is Mike Munzer talking to the great Alice Lowe. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to welcome Alice Lowe to the Empire Podcast. Hello, Alice. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good, thank you. Uh, tell us a little bit about Greatest Days and your character and where she kind of fits into this story. So Greatest Days is about a fictional band who sing the songs of Take That in the 90s. And five girls are fans of that band and they are firm friends. And then something bad happens and they don't see each other for 20 years. And then they reunite because the band has also reunited and uh, some hijinks ensue. But it's basically funny, spectacular, sad, moving, relatable. It's a proper movie movie, I would say. (laughs) It is a proper movie movie. It looked like it must have been so much fun to make as well. Tell me a little bit about what appealed to you initially about this script and this project. Well, I mean, it's the right age group for me. Obviously, I remember Take That. It's very much part of my cultural landscape at the age that I am. (laughs) Um, So I knew immediately what it was. But I also 
Do I have been in a musical as well? I was just like, someone's asking me to be in a musical. This is amazing. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know anything about dancing or singing. So the fact that someone would allow me to do that felt unlikely. So I felt like I should jump upon that. And it was also filming in Greece. And I knew it was going to be this incredible, you know, cinematic project. And just the story, really, just the just the characters, the female friendship mm. angle, which I just think you don't see on screen that much. Um, and just following these characters' journey, it's just a really lovely story and really identifiable and relatable. I love that. What was your relationship in the 90s with Take That, the boy band? Like, were you a fan like these characters were? So my thing, I think when I first met Koki, the director, she was like, were you a fan? And I was like... Well, I was more of a Nirvana girl, and, you know. She was like, "Did you have a favorite?" And I was like, "Oh, no, no, Howard. Yeah, Howard, my favorite." So, like, <laughs> I think you, even if you weren't a fan of Take That, you had to pick one to be your favorite, and you you knew the songs. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I think that's one of the things about nostalgia is like you think that you weren't that into this band, and then the music comes on, and you're just bellowing along to it. Yeah. you know, and it's. It's very irresistible because it triggers some kind of time travel within you that sends you back to that time. And that's why I think so many people are going to enjoy it because uh, you cannot help but be transported by these songs and, and the remembrance of, of what, what they meant to you. But also there's a new story being told about them. So the songs are all really emotional, but I, I didn't even realize how sort of powerful the songs are until... Mm. I kind of was filming and I was like, wow, you know, I read in the script, a song plays, well, what does that mean? And then you're acting the scene and going, oh, I'm really emotional singing this song. <laughs> it genuinely, the songs really pull a punch. Um, and I think a lot of people will sort of come to appreciate that musically watching the film, how how great the songs are and what buttons they push for people. How was it for you being in a musical, you know, singing the choreography and all of that stuff? I mean, I was plunged in the deep end, let's say. It was just like suddenly I was in a rehearsal with trained dancers and like learning steps and stuff. I was absolutely terrified, I have to say, <laughs> um, but sort of loving it because it's good to challenge yourself <laughs> and everything. Um, but, you know, it was quite surreal at times because everywhere we filmed was extraordinary. Like we filmed at Stansted Airport, mm. we filmed in Athens, you know, we filmed in a in some really crazy places. And it is a bit of a, as an actor, a bit of a pinch yourself moment where you're like, am I really doing this? Or is it like a weird dream that I'm having? <laughs> um, and, and now I've got onto a train and take that is on the train. So, I, I mean, that genuinely <laughs> happened. And some of it was just absolutely surreal and, and like a whirlwind, but brilliant for it. You know, I love that little take that cameo as well. Did you get to sort of meet those guys or sort of were they involved much while you were filming? Um, I hadn't met them before we started filming, but we knew that they were coming in. Mm. And I just, Mark Owen just told me that they were watching some of the tapes of the dance rehearsals. And I was like, no, 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 please tell me that didn't happen. But apparently it did. I was like, oh, oh God, the thought of me sort of like stumbling around like the worst Strictly character, you know. But no, I only met them on the day that we did the cameo and we saw that they did the cameo sorry <laughs> they, they did the cameo um but yeah we had to get on a train and it had to be quite late at night because the train had to be quite empty and we literally jumped on a train and take that with there and then we did the scene and then we jumped off 
and it was like that. <laughs> it was really surreal and strange. Um, but they were absolutely lovely and so supportive. Was there ever anything that you were an obsessive fan about, Alice? Um, you mentioned Nirvana already. Was there anything that gave you that kind of level of fandom? I mean, I had a thing of really liking bands where everyone was dead, which was just not <laughs> ideal for sort of fandom because you can't go and see them live because they're literally <laughs> not live. They are dead. So I like really like yeah. The Doors, for example, which, you know, um, <laughs> I was kind of had, a, I was a bit like, you know, I was a bit young to be a goth. I sort of missed that, but I definitely would have been if I'd been born a bit earlier, I think. I would have been into all that mm. kind of thing. But yeah, when I was a bit younger, I was kind of, I really liked Morton Harkett. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> but that, I was a bit younger then. But I definitely, I get it. I, I think I'm a bit like that about actors. Are there certain actors that I'll be like obsessed with, you know? And have you ever been on the receiving end of that kind of fandom, you know? Because you've been involved in a lot of kind of real cult favourite projects, you know, whether it's Garth Marenghi or Sightseers, of course, you know, these are things that do attract a kind of cult fandom. Have you kind of experienced fandom firsthand in that regard? I mean, what I would say is the lovely thing is if people know my work, they're genu they're generally nice people. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. I know that's a weird thing to say, but it's generally they are genuinely interested in what I do. It's not mm -hmm. that I'm just famous. Like someone said to me that um I don't know, it was quite a famous person and someone just said, I know you. I know what you do. So it's not I like what you do, it's I know what you do. It's almost an inherent backhanded <laughs> compliment. <laughs> and I if people know what I do, they generally like it if that makes sense. So I just meet really, really nice people who are genuinely interested and that makes it quite a nice experience for me. And I don't generally, I'm not famous enough to get trolled or whatever. I'm not kind of, you know, I'm not that person that people need to, I don't know. But I, yeah, I, I see a nice side of it, I think. I really like my fans. They're all sort of weirdos like me and I'm like, I get it. Fine. <laughs> I love that. Do, do you think, you know, fandom itself is a kind of interesting word. I don't know. I feel like these days it might have some negative connotations in a way. People talk mm -hmm. a lot about toxic fandom these days. Is that something new? Do you think is that has that changed because of stuff like social media or has that always been the case? Because again, I feel like Greatest Days really celebrates fandom, right? But these days fandom could almost be considered a sort of dirty word, you know? I mean, it's interesting to hear take that talking about it and Mark talking about it because they got to know their fans they got mm. to know them really you know closely because they would be there for for decades afterwards they'd be like oh, i recognize you you came to every single gig back yeah. in 1998 or whatever and that's that sort of thing of just kind of you start to see people as real people i think that's when fandom is really toxic isn't it was when someone they've ceased to see you as a human being and so they're not mm. really treating you with respect or kindness and um, then it sort of starts to become a bit frightening. But generally, you know, I think, I think it's a lovely thing when people see each other as individuals and as, as, as humans rather than some sort of all-powerful creature. I think that's when it gets a bit worrying. Absolutely. I think it's when, when fans start to feel like they own a property, right? I think that's yeah. when it starts getting a bit toxic. Um, let's go back to this idea of this being a, a jukebox musical as well. Obviously, a musical in which we all know and love the songs. And there, there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of debate recently, Alice, right, about 
should you sing along to jukebox musicals? Obviously, this particularly relates to the theatre and people got upset when other people were singing along to songs. Uh, What are your thoughts? Should you be able to sing along to musicals when you watch them publicly? I think I'm personally really, really happy if someone wants to go to see a film regardless of what they want to do in it i'm within reason (laughs) um but i don't know maybe they should just do silent screenings and singing screenings i don't know maybe that's the way to do it because i don't like it when people talk through films particularly if i'm like a bit like i can't hear what they're actually saying now but i wouldn't i wouldn't put out a law about it do you know what i mean i think it's just as a filmmaker Mm. i'm like please just come see the film i don't care enjoy it in whatever way you want let's fill the cinemas let's make sure cinema doesn't die kind of thing so i sort of like think the more um reasons you can give to people to make it a group experience is is good really completely agree why not sing along (laughs) why not exactly i agree um alice it's been i can't believe it's been seven years now since prevenge obviously the movie that you starred in you wrote you directed um and i'm very excited for your upcoming project that you've also written and directed time stalker right tell us a little bit about that what can you reveal about time stalker so it's funny you're talking about toxic fandom (laughs) it's actually it's well the clues in the title it's about a stalker but it's about reincarnation really and it's about a woman who falls in love with let's say the wrong person and then dies horribly and that keeps happening throughout time so it's set over seven different time periods um i'm just literally about to lock the film now and then we're just finishing it off and then you know watch the space we'll be trying to get it out in the next sort of few months or so um it's hugely exciting i'm really thrilled with it it's very very visual people sort of talk to me as if it's big budget but it isn't it's low budget but it looks big budget and for me that's a really new thing and i'm very excited about it oh that's so exciting how was the um the process of filming this especially in comparison to prevenge which i know you did under such kind of tight circumstances right because of your situation and the filming situation well we've still filmed time stalker in 22 days because <laughs> I like to give myself a challenge you know um I also twisted my ankle on the first day of filming which sounds like oh nothing but it was pretty bad and um I don't know because we set it over seven different time periods it was a big it was a very big challenge actually but then it was joyous it was so joyous to do because you know i feel like independent film is kind of under threat really mm. and to just be able to film anything that is comes from your imagination and you get it on screen just feels like an utterly magical experience and a really rare experience so i did i had a bigger budget than prevenge for sure um but we still didn't make it easy for ourselves. <laughs> we kind of were very, very ambitious with it. But I think it's going to pay off. It's like, I, you know, I don't think it's like anything else out there at the moment. I so I, I'm hoping it's going to challenge people in an interesting way. Prevenge felt like the kind of the beginning of a sort of new, really interesting wave of genre movies made by women as well. Like I'm thinking of films like St. Maud by Rose Glass or Prano Bailey Bond's Sensor, obviously Greatest Days as well. Like you've got these, do, do you, have you felt kind of yourself, Alice, a sort of a change in the industry over the last few years or do you still think we've got a way to go there? Um, I definitely feel a change for sure. I mean, I've just made a film and I think that speaks for itself, but mm. you know, you're always on a, on tenterhooks whether you're ever going to make something else again um 
And I think there is a sense that like, I think though all those films you mentioned are my favorite. I love all of those people. Um, but there is a sense of like, okay, I've made a film about women. Can I now make a film about anything I want to? That's what I would like <laughs> yes. to be able to be allowed to make a film about whatever I want uh, in the way that I feel male filmmakers can, you know, they, they don't get sort of pigeonholed into making one thing or another. So I think there's a little bit of a way to go with that and and just forging a career as a female filmmaker i think is is um is more unusual still like uh to to make a name for yourself as a sort of in the way that someone like ari aster or you know um that you know what you're gonna that you're gonna get an ari aster film you don't quite know what it's gonna be but it's gonna be an ari aster film and i personally that would be my ambition to get to the point where i'm just like please just allow me to make something that's just in my head and and trust me to make something that's really out there and interesting that would be my dream to achieve that but i think we yeah. are getting close to that and uh i, I just love all those it's, it's what's brilliant about it is the idea that like you could have a round table with female directors now which quite yes. kind of wouldn't have been possible you know once time once upon a time people would be like would you want to be like andrea arnold and i'd be like well i love andrea arnold but she doesn't make stuff what like what i make so i, I can't really compare myself to her whereas someone like rose glass comes along and i'm like oh i'd love to sit in a room with rose glass and you know julia de cornow and yeah. prano paley bond and all of those people and just go oh my god we're just talking about films we're not even talking about being women we're just talking about films and our films and I think that once upon a time would have been impossible or, or, or hard to do, to bring people together with a um, similar sensibility, female, di female directors. I love the idea as well that you could go from like Ben Wheatley, for example, who's just done the Meg 2. Like, <laughs> would you, would you have given the chance, Alice, would you go do like a Marvel film or something like that? I'd never say never. Uh, honestly, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of felt like, feel like I'm, I, I, um, I, don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I have had meetings with them or a meeting. Oh, amazing. Um, but like, I didn't feel qualified at that time. And I feel like I need to get to the point where I know what an Alice Lowe film is in order to have the strength to bring what I want to bring to one of mm. those films, because I don't know how much freedom really you get making a Marvel film. Like, you know, you have to serve their brand and, and, and what they do, which is perfectly right. But I do think that the more you strengthen your own style and your own voice, um, the stronger your, your sensibility is going to be and stronger your skills, to be honest. So I, yeah, totally. I, I would never say never with any of those things, especially if it's sort of uh, an angle that excites me or a story that I really can identify with. Yeah, for sure. Love that. And final question before we wrap up, Alice, what is, I've got to ask you, what is your favourite Take That song? Do you know what? I've been saying um, The Flood, uh, but I'm going to mix that with Rule the World because I actually, I think they... Oh, so it's the, the newer era. It's like the newer yeah, era. The newer era that, the yeah, the I think it's a really good song. But um, I also like the film Stardust and I think they use Rule yeah. the World. Do they use Rule the World for that? Yeah, they do. I think they do. They yeah. do. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Really love that one. Good choices. Excellent choices. Alice Lowe, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Okay, so that was Alice Lowe and we will be talking about Greatest Days later on in the show in the reviews section. Let's talk about movie news. What has been happening in the world of movie news? I know you love a release date, so I should we just get that date. out of the way first? So mm, Disney have shuffled around a lot of release dates Um 
particularly a lot in their case, I think, for a number of reasons. Number one, of course, the writer's strike is continuing. That has particular effects for the, given the interconnected nature of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So if one thing goes back, then other things have to shift around as well. They've obviously also got the um, continual boundary pushing of uh, James's BFF, James Cameron, who is still working on making magic happen on Pandora. Um so there have been a whole raft of changes. Uh, Brave New World, the Captain America movie, has moved from May to August next year, which has pushed Thunderbolts to December next year, Blade to the following February, and Fantastic Four to the following May. Mm-hmm. That means Avengers, Kang Dynasty, which I'm sure I predicted has indeed been bumped back a full year to 2026, with Secret Wars then following on in 2027, both May releases. Wow. Avatar 3 is now going to be 2025, December again. Avatar 4, 2029. <laughs> Happy Christmas there, James. Uh, only 20 years since the first one. And Avatar 5. And then Avatar 5 in December 2031. Where Zoe Saldana said she will be 52 years old. Are any of us still going to be alive? We'll all be dead. We will all be know. long dead before the final Avatar comes out. Um, but, you know, Deadpool 3 uh, has moved up from next November to next May. I'm not sure how they're going to manage that, given that I believe they're currently suspended because of the writer's strike, but I wish them luck. They are? They started filming a couple of weeks ago. I thought they were suspended again, but maybe I've misheard. Okay. Maybe I've misheard. Um, and there are there is Star Wars news. So 2026, we'll see two Star Wars films, one in May and one in December. We don't know which ones, but probably one of them has Ray in. And this is obviously if the actor's strike goes ahead, which looks very, very likely, then this is going to be even more subject more to change. More seismic yeah. and more subject to change. And you would think that this sort of pressure would then bring the studios to bear somewhat and make them realize that what the fuck are we doing? Let's actually give the writers and the actors what they want. And hopefully the directors, I know a lot of directors mm. are going to vote against the deal that they have that has been struck on their behalf. Uh, a lot of directors with consciences uh, are going to stand against that. So maybe we might have a situation where all three guilds strike at the same time and that would absolutely blow the whole thing wide open. Uh, give them what they want. Give them what they want. Acquiesce their demands, please. Um, and uh, and that's that's get this show back on the road, shall we? Absolutely. Not least because we're going to run out of guests very very quickly <laughs> if no one's available to do any interviews. There is that day. Well, look, we're just going to have to start interviewing people in the West End or something. I mean, I, I was interviewing each other that I don't have time at the moment to watch all of the shit that I have to watch. So actually, perhaps what I need is for them to shut down production of everything for just a cool six months so I can catch up on Naked Attraction. Is that's the one? That's yeah. That's, that's the it. that's okay. the scripted show that I'm most interested. Spoiler special. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, sticking with um, release dates for a minute. Vin Diesel has Vin Diesel has announced April 2025 for Fast X Part Two. April 2025. So that means Hobbs comes. Do we know when? No, we do not. We do not. And I don't think anyone else does either. <laughs> no. But you know, I'm sure they've got a date in mind. Uh, uh, so that's exciting. I've got a date for you as well. You have? Uh, yes, I do, Helen. I want to set you up with the wow. new Fede Alvarez film, uh, Alien, has mm-hmm. a note. His, his Alien film, I should say, which is August 16th, 2024. Mm. Uh, so we will see the return of the Xenomorphs. Then. We will. And there is also a date for the Moana live action. Um, make way, make way. 2025, June 2025. June. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, if we're going to talk about happened. live action Disney, we should probably talk about the, the deer in the room. We should talk about the what deer the in the room. What the fuck is going on? Like, when I got this alert on my phone, it said, Sarah Polly to direct 
live action Bambi for Disney. And I was like, this is some kind of wind up. It feels like a Mad Lib, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, you know, it feels like somebody reached into the indie director's <laughs> pile and pulled a name and then reached into the Disney films pile and pulled a name and then put the two together. But I mean, look, let, let's be optimistic. Sarah Polly is a fantastic, fantastic director. Um, of course, most recently, Women Talking, which yeah. is an amazing, amazing film. Thumper Talking. This is what this is going to be. Um, yeah, sure. But I, I and and I feel like she also does have a kind of an eye for the natural world and for detail and for the kind of, you know, almost introspective nature of Bambi. Bambi is a good Disney film. Who's going to play Bambi's mum, Helen? Who's going to do it? Uh, who's going to who's going who's to take that bullet? But like for the if, team. Oh, literally. Um, but if <laughs> if if anybody's going to break our hearts in a live action Bambi, like Sarah Polly is not oh my a God, bad that, shout for that. That, that is true. Um, I I just is this the best use of her limited time on this planet? <laughs> I I don't know. Do we need a live action Bambi? A no, story designed designed don't. to be told in animation? I don't think so. But if it's going to happen, listen, Barry Jenkins is making yeah, a Lion exactly. King film. I know, I know, yeah. but 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 I, like, I kind of feel like a generation of many generations, in fact, of children were traumatized by the death of Bambi's mom. Do we really need to see her brain splattered all over yes, the ground in, in full 4K UHD? They might change it up. I'm not sure why you think that Sarah Polly would do that. They might change it up. Yes, it's not like Fede Alvarez. Is Helen, Helen Bambi's mum literally died in a hail of bullets. So. It, it, like, listen, with Florence oh, so Pugh. Florence Pugh is going to be voicing Bambi's mum. You heard it here first. <laughs> Bambi's mum died, and it was a very, very different time. And you know, it, it, they might switch it up completely and fuck the patriarchy. And it might be Bambi's dad who gets killed in a hail of bullets early on. And then Bambi's mum is like, yeah, all right, whatever. And they just um, move on with their lives. Maybe. I, I don't think that's how deer really work. But, that's how deer you know. work. That's exactly how deer work. All right. If you're a deer, if you're a big deer, the one with the, the antlers, then a, a hunter is going to want to kill you. It might be a Cheney. It might not be. Craven the hunter. It might be Craven the hunter. It might be a full What's a Bambi's full dad's name? Jeff. Dear John. Yes, that's him. Dear John, no idea, no idea. <laughs> I know his um, aunt is called Enna, and the reason I know that is because it's in the New York Times crossword quite often. Hang on, Auntie Enna? Yeah, E-N-A. E-N-A. Yeah, Bambi has an aunt? It turns out, yeah. So Doesn't deers, she... They always be fucking. Oh, There's loads of them all over the shop, all over the I shop. I think that's rabbits. There are a lot of thumpers. Oh, that's right, yes. They call right. him thumper for a reason. It has nothing oh. to do with his feet. God, he might anyway. get mixomatosis and die. But yeah, I saw I saw a number of people on film Twitter, the the worst of all Twitters uh, <laughs> this week, bemoaning this and decrying this and, and saying things like, you know, why do Disney even want to hire directors of this caliber to make their movies? And I'm like, well, you know what? You've, you've, you've failed to take one thing into consideration here, that the directors might want to do it. Barry Jenkins might want to make this Genuinely movie. Genuinely does. Sarah Polly yeah. might want to make this movie. Yeah. I don't, and, and, I don't understand why we completely and utterly discount that. Also, you can't, on the one hand, say they never do anything new, they never take any risks, they always do the same shit, and then moan when they hire someone who might have a distinctive <laughs> But there is there is a slight one. I can see I can see it because when you do have a director who who breaks through with a, a distinct POV and a distinct vision and a voice, and then they immediately go off and you know and and take a great big wheelbarrow of cash to make a Star Wars or a Marvel yeah. Yeah. or a Disney live action animation adaptation, you know you can maybe go oh well you know we could have had another three cracking Sarah Polly movies, but then Sarah Polly would go it took me years to get Women Talking made. Mm -hmm. 
and this will help me get the next film made. I mean, it's it's so obvious in in, in that regard why you if, would do these things. But there might if, also be a reason why they way, want to yeah. do it. Yeah, no, like if it happens that way, and I don't think it always does, then great. Um, if they are getting bucket loads of cash, then also great. Um, and if they can bring an original voice to it, then fantastic. Um, I just hope all of those things apply in every case, quite frankly. But um, but look, like I say, if you're going to do it, like put it in good hands, put it in the hands of someone who is an artist and. Um, I, I, and I hope it is brilliant. I, you know, Pete's Dragon was great, was really, really good. Mm-hmm. There have been some good Disney live action remakes. That should be the poster quote. <laughs> so I hope this is one of the great ones that makes us say, you know what, we can't discount them all because we can't entirely. Stephen Capel Jr. after uh, Transformers Rise of the Beast has been signed up to direct the inevitable next Transformers film, which is a thing that is happening. Uh, at some point in the near future. So he's he's definitely talking to the studio about return engagement, but hasn't been formally hired yet. And we're happy about this? I mean, it, like I say, it was better than the night one, whatever that was called. Better than the night one, worse than the Bumblebee. Well, better than the Travis yeah. Knight one, which was Bumblebee. Hell, no, no, come on. No, oh, no. God. Oh, no, better, better, than, than, the better than the last night. night one, which isn't actually the last night one. It's the one before the last night one, but it's called the last night. Yeah, the previous night one yeah. was the, the previous Bumblebee night one. one, which is still the best one <laughs> probably ever. Anyway, and uh, so, so that is—it's not bad news. Like I say, he it's did a perfectly news. good job with Rise of the Beast. It's just does that franchise super need to exist anymore? <laughs> That's a question. Um, and uh, Hugh Grant has signed up to star in a horror movie called Heretic, oh. which is kind of interesting because I feel like he hasn't done a lot of horror before. No, I would agree. This is from Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who wrote mm-hmm. A Quiet Place and then uh, brought us Sixty Five, which we quite enjoyed last year. Yes, um, Hugh Grant versus Dinosaurs. This is apparently two young women of faith who are lured into a cat and mouse game in the home of an eccentric man. One imagines <laughs> Phoenix Buchanan. That's it. Well, it's he Phoenix could be playing Buchanan. both women and the eccentric man. True. So he's got range. <laughs> he really does. Uh, yep, that sounds very, very good so, indeed. Yeah. Well done. Well done, everybody involved in that. Uh, and we have some sad news. We have some very, very sad news. Lots of sad news. Lots of sad news. Some very, very sad bits of news. We lost three greats this week. Uh, we lost uh, Treat Williams. Treat Williams died mm. uh, in a motorcycle accident at the age of 71. Uh, he had so much left to give. Uh, um, tweeted just an hour before he was killed uh, in that. The great Treat Williams, star of Sydney Lumet's Prince of the City, star of Steven Spielberg's 1941, uh, star of Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, yep. I Am Godzilla, You Are Japan, and of course the film that I watched because it's, it's me uh, is tribute to Treat Williams on the night that his death was announced Deep was rising. of course Deep Rising. Deep Rising, yeah. which is Deep his rising. greatest work. Now what? It's, oh, it's so, so good. good. And he is so good in it yes. and obviously the film's stiff when it came out at the box office and was roundly derided by critics. It's amazing. Uh, but it is one of those movies where you're going 25 years on, you look at it going, okay, the special effects are terrible, <laughs> but there's a real charm here. There's a real knowingness to mm-hmm. it. It's, his tongue is planted firmly in his cheek. He gets the tone of it absolutely spot on yeah. and uh, made you just think, oh, Stephen Summers, who did the, the, the Mummy the year after that pretty much. And uh, yeah, what, what happened to him? He's in director jail now pretty much, isn't he? Uh, for... After what happened, after after what happened on Van Helsing, after after just Van Helsing and GI Joe, and mm. I think he's kind of struggled to get movies off the ground, which is a real shame. Real but shame. Deep Rising is great, and Treat Williams is fantastic. If you've mm. never seen it, it's about a group of <laughs> hard bitten mercenaries uh, who are paid basically to 
perform a heist on a very, very high-end cruise ship. Uh, but the cruise ship, unbeknownst to them, has been attacked by a giant sea monster literally minutes before they show up. And so Lay, along with Treat Williams, who is the the gnarly boat captain that they have basically kidnapped uh, and forced to do their bidding have to somehow get out of the boat along with master thief Famke Janssen and uh, and 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 survive and it's so much fun it is an absolute blast and the cast when you watch it again you go oh my god there's young Jaiman Honsu there's young Jason Fleming there's young Cliff mm-hmm. Curtis my god it's stacked it really but Treat Williams was fantastic and deserved to be a much much bigger star and we also lost Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, the the great, great, one of the great American novelists of the last, well, century. Um, one of the great fake Twitter accounts, but that's a, neither here nor there. But of course, wrote No Country for Old Men, wrote um, Blood Meridian, which it, that still hasn't been done, has still, it? And I don't think it really don't, No, no yeah. it doesn't make any sense that it would be. But it, there have been numerous attempts to adapt that by basically everyone. The Road, of course, um, was road. not only a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, but became a very good film as All well. All the Pretty Horses. All the Pretty Horses. Mm-hmm. I was a bite together. Didn't do quite so well. Um, Children of God was also adapted from his his work. Um and one of his plays was made into the Sunset Limited in 2011. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in a film in film terms, he'll be me- remembered chiefly for No Country for Old Men and The Road. And The Counselor. Yeah, so No Country for Old Men and The Road then. And, oh, come on, that's uh, harsh. That's harsh. That's a good film. It, I, I mean, know. admittedly, he wasn't like a lol merchant, but The Counselor is so <laughs> bleak. I'd love to read the screenplay for that because he was a first to punctuation. Aren't we all? In, yeah. in his novels. Well, what did he do? In screenplay format, genuinely, I'm, that's a, I'm not trying to be facetious. I would love to know how he formatted and structured that screenplay. Maybe he formatted them fine, just didn't like use punctuation. And maybe he did. Yeah. Maybe he did. Uh, anyway, give the counselor another shot. I would say. I mean, maybe, but hmm. mostly read his books because they're. But mostly fantastic. read his books. Yeah. Yes, and insert your own punctuation <laughs> as and where oh you see fit. Uh, but yes, Cormac McCarthy, who died at the age of 89, and. At the age of 87, today we lost Glenda Jackson, the great Glenda Jackson, two-time Oscar winner, but uh, also turned Labour MP mm-hmm. for many, many, many years, one of the great British actresses, uh, 87 years old. She passed away this afternoon just before we started recording Hell's Bells. Yeah, just an astonishing actress. So she won Best Actress twice for Women in Love in 1970 mm-hmm. and A Touch of Class in 1973. Um, she won a BAFTA for Sunday Bloody Sunday. She started as Mary Queen of Scots. Uh, she starred in the likes of Hedda. She played Elizabeth I. Um, she was a, a massive presence on stage as well, particularly known for like Anthony and Cleopatra, which she played King Lear, I think, twice, or maybe it was in the UK and then she took it to Broadway as well. Yeah, because she, um, she, um, she. That was part of her comeback sort yes. of tour after being an MP. She was an MP for, I can't remember how long, but a long, long yeah, time. It was, it was, it was a hell uh, of a pivot. 92 to 2015. There you go. She was, yeah, she was a giant both in acting and in politics and um, and will be very much missed in both, I think. Yep. Check out her uh, guest appearance on Morecambe and Wise. She's fantastic in <laughs> Genuinely, that. Genuinely, she's yeah, very check good. Check it out. That, yeah. yeah, really, really great stuff. And her last film is a film called The Great Escaper, which is due for release later on this year. In fact, I got a press release about it last week, as a matter of fact. And it is, uh, she co-stars alongside Michael Caine. Amazing. Yeah, Michael Caine. Uh, so very, very, very sad indeed. She had just really come back to acting and uh, had proved that she hadn't lost the old touch. Absolutely. A, a touch of class, you might even say. Okay. Uh, Glenda Jackson, who passed away at the age of 87. Time now for another guest. And... 
The Flash is out this week. In fact, The Flash is out. There he goes. <laughs> he was out again. Uh, the Flash is out right now. It's in cinemas right now. And it marks the return of Ezra Miller's Barry Allen, a.k.a. The Flash, of course. But for a lot of people, perhaps most importantly of all, it marks the return, finally the return, this one hasn't been deleted, uh, of Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman, the first time he has played this iconic role since 1992's Batman Returns. Blimey O'Reilly. That is quite a gap. This is such a momentous occasion, the return of Michael Keaton to the Batsuit, that we were delighted to put on a recent big old event in London as part of the Empire VIP Club. Very, very exciting indeed. Where in London we staged a screening of Tim Burton's original 1989 film, Batman, and then a screening of Andy Muschietti's 2023 film, The Flash. And in between those was an exclusive Q&A with Michael Keaton himself who came out on the night and was absolutely delightful. Straight from the set of Beetlejuice 2, I believe, is where Ooh. he came from. And he uh, he's very, very excited about shooting Beetlejuice 2 with Tim Burton. And uh, our Alex Godfrey, the award-winning Alex Godfrey, was the guy who sat down and had a big old natter on stage with Michael Keaton. And here is that conversation. So it's a live conversation. There might be some sound quality issues from time to time. And every now and again, you'll hear an audience as well. So don't be freaked out when that happens. Doesn't happen all the time. Uh, so here's Michael Keaton. This was a really fun interview. Do please enjoy. How's everybody? <laughs> they just watched Batman 1989. They're really good. Yeah. When was That's the last great. time you saw that? Uh, been a while. Yeah. Yeah. But we were just talking about how good it is the other day. <laughs> you know, it holds up, man, and it looks yeah. incredible up there. Yeah. Uh, when was the last time you were sitting in front of an audience of people talking about Batman? Uh, but. 12 days ago. Oh, right. no. <laughs> no, no, no. Long time. Long, 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 long time. What's it like for you doing it again and being involved in this again and being Batman again? It's fun. Yeah? Yeah, it's a lot of fun, actually. We were talking about it the other day, and um, I was thinking about it because I've said everything you can say about it. Okay. Really. But I thought, well, just, you know, it's still, it's still relevant, you know, because... I mean, I never, I never know who cares or who doesn't care or who is curious or who isn't curious, you know. So, uh, you know, I'll probably repeat myself, but the, but the truth is, you know, the, the, when people talk about it, the original Batman, it all, uh, it, it all still is the same. The answer is essentially the same because, uh, and. Because I'm very proud of it, and I'm proud of what Tim and I pulled off. Not Tim and I, everyone, everyone else. And uh, I'm working with Tim right now. Um, it's so fun. I can't tell you. Beetlejuice too, everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is so friggin' fun. I can't tell you. It's the most fun I've had working on a movie, and I can't tell you how long right now. So we were talking, you know, there's a little downtime. There's actually not much downtime. We're really moving uh, fast. Uh, but every once in a while, we'll just start talking about things or things will come up that we remember about making the first Batman. And, um, you know, we keep going back to the same things, except his memory is much better than mine. He Much, much better. He remembers all kinds of things that I had totally forgotten about. Can you cast your mind back to when you first spoke to him in the first place about playing Batman? Was yes. it on Beetlejuice? Was it afterwards? Afterwards. What did you think when this came to you? 
Because I can't imagine you were expecting. No, no, wasn't expecting. No, wasn't expecting. Uh, I can tell you exactly what it was. Uh, and, you know, he said, I want to talk to you about something and blah, blah, blah. And he started to talk to me. He said, I just want you to read this. Um, because I think I'm going to make this movie and he's, I, I knew, but you know what it was at that, t- at that point. <clears throat> and I said, okay. Um, now what's interesting, if you think about this, right, is that up until then, you know, his and my relationship was only Beetlejuice, right? So there was something, <laughs> I don't know that I've ever asked him this actually, but Something gave him the idea, you know. Uh, and so he said, go home and read it. And I re- remember where we were sitting when we met again. And uh, I said, well, uh, no one's going to make, no one's going to do what I think. You know, they're not going to, you know, this is not probably not going to happen because I can't imagine anyone would want to make the movie that I see. And sitting there, I said, okay, here's what I think. And Tim's sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I started to look, and I start to go down, you know, the list of the guy, uh, uh, Bruce Wayne, really, and uh, my take on what I read. And I'll remember him, he had real long hair at the time, not saying anything, but his hair kept going as he was nodding, yes. He kept going, yes. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. And I went, okay, really? <laughs> you know, then I guess we're seeing the same thing. Uh, but you have to understand, you know, he, he's one of the very few people, if you, if you add it all up, I don't, I don't mean just the major, 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 major people, but if ever, everybody who, you know, is in and around any movie that was ever made to... Now you know he's he's a he's a rare breed. He he's a true true artist and he's a true original. Uh, and so you know I didn't I didn't know exactly. He, he was already seeing it, and it was based it was based on the Frank Miller uh, stuff. And I was still not uh, I wasn't aware of all that. You know I just knew oh yeah Batman you know you know. I know who that is and what that is, you know, I thought. And then I went and read, I said, I better read the Frank Miller stuff. And then I went, oh, yeah, okay, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> you know, just, the, just the, the imagery alone, you know. What was it that you were saying to him that he agreed with? What was your take on the character? What was depressed. It? He's depressed. Right. You know, immediately, you know, I said, well, I'm kind of depressed. You know, so it's kind of like I wasn't really committing to it because I thought he might say, uh Actually, I don't know what he thought he might say, but if I was saying to a studio executive, they might have said, well, I don't know if he's depressed, you know. You know, yeah, I'm not so sure. <laughs> you know, they'd be sweating bullets. And Tim said, oh, yeah, for sure. He's, and he's, we also thought he was odd. Yeah. You know, he's like, he's, he's, this, he's this odd dude, you know, which was fun, you know. And also I said, but, you know, and it, and it was, it was, it was, Dark. It wasn't, you know, like I used to say. It was wasn't. It was. It was never this. You know, it was never that. It was, you know, uh, you know, cliched arms akimbo. You know, it was never that. It was like I said. Well, you know, you know, the whole backstory of the parents. It was kind of easy when you think about it. You go, okay. Well, I can kind of see, you know, how you can get kind of depressed, you know, if you see your parents get murdered, and then, 
he kept going, yep, 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 and this and this and this. Now go now look at the Frank Miller stuff, which I did, and to get the kind of imagery and the way he wanted to go and the and the colors and, and all that. And then we just took it from there. The other thing is we both always we didn't discuss much of it until we started shooting it, but I thought there was a lot of funny stuff. I, I just knew there was funny in there. It wasn't written, but you know, like the scene where uh, uh, this is the perfect example. I think the scene where you know Vicky Vale comes over for dinner at Wayne Manor, and uh, you know he's Tim because come on, let's go look at this room. It wasn't a set; it was in a giant house out. I forget where it was, and the table was there, and there wasn't much else in the room. And I remember going, "Wow, this this guy's life," you know. <laughs> you know, he just rambles around. And so the the line where I say to her, she talks about the house and I go, and I kind of look around and I say, I don't think I've ever been in this room. You know, it, it's funny, but it also says everything. You know, some guy, yeah. you know, rambling around in this big place, you know, not, you know, not, you know, alone, you know, but has been alone like since then, you know, except for Alfred, you know. When, it's like the the best. Mick, Mick Goff was just yeah. the best. Yeah. Tell us about the Batman voice because everyone sort of does a variation on that now, but yeah. Adam West did not do that. <laughs> so you were the first to say he's going to sound different when he's in that suit. Correct. Was that your idea? Correct. What was your thought behind it? The thought was, the thought was, I can't tell you how simple some of this stuff was. So let me let me let me tell you the way to explain this is, and and you know to some degree, he and I still do this, and it is the most fun. We really just go, oh, I, I got I got it. I know what I want to do. I know what, I know the idea, and I know what I, what I want to do basically. But then when you get there, you you're like we you actually make something. Dig it. As opposed to saying, well, we know what it's going to look like. And now, you know, of course, it's, you know, it's all technologic, technically done and, and, and uh, you know, green screened and everything. And so, you know, there's all that. So it's this simple. Honestly, some of this was so simple. I'm, I'm, I'm logical to the point of, like, annoying people. Like, I actually bother people because I always fall back to logic. And I remember standing there and going, okay, now how are we going to do this? You know, the scene was like closer than, than we are apart right now, right? There's a scene with somebody standing right here. And I go, God, dude's going to look at me and go, hey, it's Bruce Wayne. You know what I mean? I just couldn't. I can't. I can't. So I, I got the, the bigger picture. I said, yeah, don't. You can't think exactly exactly like you would be if you were doing a regular movie obviously so i saw the you know i saw the the bigness of it and the scale of it nonetheless there was no way as an actor i could rationalize that so i went okay so we started to stage things differently too like a lot of times i'd never look right direct i'd, I'd look like this and there were periods where i'd go down and, I, and i'd look at the light and i decided and he decided said everything should be a lot of the stuff should be kind of off a little bit or or in and out of sh in and out of shadows honestly it's as, it's as, it's as practical as how do i how does the audience really believe 
that people don't go, well, clearly this is Bruce Wayne dressed up in a rubber suit. You know what I mean? So, so I couldn't, I kept, we kept finding spots like always hide or, or drop down. So the voice came from, I said, well, there was a whole th- bunch of stuff that was cut out that I always regret was, feel bad that it was cut out, which was I did this thing and you kind of see it in one scene a little bit, but it's not really what I, not to the extent to which I did it, which was I thought, First of all, the suit physically was so helpful to to get lonely and to get and to feel I don't know if displaced is the word, but to feel uh, deep, deep, deep inside yourself and to feel alone and to feel unrelated to the rest of the world. You know, it was just like I, I immediately as soon as I went in, I went, okay, this is gonna be a problem. Then I went, no, not only is this not gonna be a problem, this is gonna be great. I, you know, so so uh, all that just helped. You know, the the, the loneliness of him and the, and the distance, you know, and everything. So the voice. Sorry, it took me a long time to get this, but you have to understand the whole picture. So the voice was, well, if you're standing there and I start talking, and I'm Bruce. People knew they know Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne knows everybody. Everybody knows him. He's a, he's a power player in Gotham, right? So it's not like people don't know what he sounds like. I couldn't rationalize it. So I did this thing where I used to fall like into a trance because I wanted to say, well, what happens between the time he said, okay, time to be Batman? Because it's a, he's got two personalities, you know? Like the guy's not psychotic, but, you know, you know, not far from it, right? You kind of controlled psychosis, right? You kind of say, in order for me to justify all this, I can't... I, I can't be, you know, uh, changing the, the oil on the Batmobile and then go, oh, I'm going to go out and kill some people. You know, <laughs> you have to go. I, so I thought he probably had to go into some kind of deep, deep trance, you know, which is a whole scene that I don't think ever made it in. I can't remember. I haven't seen it for so long. But, but I thought, okay, how do you justify everything else? So I thought, all right, it's cheesy. But once he goes into that, he doesn't think like he does as Bruce Wayne. He doesn't act like he does as Bruce Wayne because it's, it would make no sense to me. So, so the voice came out of that. The voice simply came out of that. It was a really practical thing and, and, and uh, like that. Tell us about going up against Jack Nicholson because obviously formidable guy, yeah. legendary actor. Yeah. Um, so you had to go up against him as an actor and also the character. Character, yeah. That one. yeah. What was it like for you with all that in your head trying to find that balance? Good question, um, because I, that normally doesn't. That, but I don't want to say I don't get intimidated, but I don't get intimidated. But he was one of the few guys I always just loved, and he's become a friend. You know, I just, you know, the stuff he was doing back then. You know, the the different characters he was playing. Not that they were all so different, but they were different movie characters, right? Uh, and he, he had he had such power, so. I wasn't intimidated, but I was, I was nervous. I didn't want to be foolish. I didn't want to be too much. I didn't want to, you know, you know, like I just, I don't know. You know, I, I thought, boy, this is going to be really interesting. And, and you're standing there looking at a guy, you know, <laughs> dressed as he were both dressed in these outrageous things, you know? So, uh, so like that, but he immediately was cool. We immediately got on and I'm trying to think, I don't think, Let's get nuts was in the script. I'm almost positive it wasn't in the script. That was me. Look at us now. And look at us now. 
and 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 that was mostly because that scene was never really that good, to be honest with you, as as written. It was, it didn't make you know that was one of the f the days where we kind of went round and round. I think uh, I think Kim's in it, and then me and Jack, and then nobody could ever find it. And I thought, okay, you know, the pressure's on, man. The pressure is on. So I thought he probably said, okay, I I, I only I'm kind of cornered. I got one way to go, and I better let this dude know the character that that we're gonna throw down, you know. And and also it was kind of like him going, "Fuck, I can't get, I can't be found out." So I better do something, you know. So he, you know, there there, there was so much, there was so much figuring it out as we went along, and that's what was fun about. That's what people don't realize. It was a huge risk for everybody. Huge risk. Was, I mean, I just knew when I took the role, I said, whoa, this goes two ways. This is either a huge mistake or this is really big. And and if it works, this is this is this is big. Not just for me, I just knew the scale of it was big. So we so you know, uh a lot of this stuff was me and Tim going, not, not me and Tim, everybody, everybody going, geez, how, how are we gonna do that? Wait, this doesn't work all of a sudden. Because you know, it was Compared to how it's made now, it's it was handmade, you know, you know, some like that, you know. Everything was a lot of things were figured out then and there, you know. Some things out of just practicality, and some things just because one of us had a really good idea. Well, it was big. It was enormous success. It changed the superhero landscape. Well, it arguably it changed everything. And, not, and I, I would argue, it's not like. People wouldn't eventually stumbled upon it, or there was some director or writer came along, would come along, and look at the, all that pulp fictiony comic book stuff, you know, and go, "Oh, I got an idea." That probably would have happened, but everything started. I say this all the time, and I, I everything started with Tim Burton doing Batman. Everything changed all that shit because. And now it's so far removed from how what what we did and how he did it. But you but you had to start from somewhere. You know, Superman. The original Superman is actually a very charming movie. Dick Donner's. Yeah, right. it is great. It's very. He pulled off something that could could have been really, and he was smart about making it very charming. You know. Yeah. Uh, but when Tim did this, just with the colors alone, you know, I was referred to as you know that blue black that. That thing that the darkness, like everybody, everybody's making such a big deal. I went, geez, it's so dark, you know. And we're going, yeah, pretty dark, <laughs> you know. And so that 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 changed the course of everything. So all these movies that are made now, in my opinion, and I bet you in the opinion of many, many, many others, maybe not, it happened with with the, what he did uh, yeah. in 1989. With Absolutely that. true. Yeah. Um. You're playing Batman again now, over 30 years on. Yeah. So what's this whole experience been like of, of, of being asked to do it again and playing him again and now just being here again, doing it again? Is it fun? Yeah? Yeah. Not as fun as Beetlejuice, but fun. <laughs> Beetlejuice is the greatest fucking fun you can have <laughs> anywhere. I'm here to tell you, dude, I'm having such a ball. It's so great. And you know what it is? We're doing it exactly like we made the first I saw a guy the other day, I'm telling you, I'm not lying, there's a woman in the waiting room. I'm not going to give too much away, but there's a woman in the great waiting room with all the shrunken heads and all yeah. that stuff and the afterlife. Literally with a fishing line. I'm not, I, I want people to know this because they'll great it. 
tugging on like the tail of a cat to move it. No special effects. No guy, you know, yeah. no machines around, no nothing. Like making it, it's so exciting. It's so fun to like do it like that. And how it happened, because I never talked about this. He and I were talking about that years and years ago. Never telling anybody. Mm-hmm. I said, if it happens, first of all, we both said we ain't doing it many times. And then Said uh, He said, I think I might have some. We both agreed. If it happens, it has to be done as close to the way we made it the first time. Mm-hmm. Just making stuff up, making and stuff they, happen and, 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 and improvising and riffing. And, you know, but literally handmade stuff. Like, you know, people creating things with their hands and build, building something, you know. It's fucking great. Uh, thank you so much for Hey, your time. this was nice. Thanks for coming, man. Thank you. All right. Michael Keaton, everybody. Thanks, okay, time now to delve deep into this week's movie reviews. And I guess the biggest film of the week. I mean, there's there's some big, big films out this week. Uh, some great films out this week. The biggest one, I would say, is The Flash, mm-hmm. which, there he goes again, um, uh, which is out in cinemas right now, opened yesterday, I believe, here. And this is finally the release of The Flash because it has taken quite a while to get here. Hell's Bells, what did we make of this one? Yeah, this is, uh, I think it, it had a it had a whiff about it. It had a worry about it. Um, you know, we have to deal up front with the fact that the star, Ezra Miller, has had serious issues, legal and I think probably otherwise uh, of late, and that will cast a shadow over the film. Uh, there may be people who don't want to see it as a result, and fair play if that's if that's the case. That's, how you, that's, that's how you feel? That's how you that's feel. That's how you feel, exactly. Yep. But their performance, and indeed performances in this film, judged purely on their own, are very, very good. So this that's is... that's what we have to do. We have to judge the film, right? Exactly. So this is uh, Andy Muschietti, as you said, uh, directing... Uh, Barry Allen, the Flash, uh, is going about his day, helping out with superheroics, being part of the Justice League, as he sees it, cleaning up after Batman's messes. Um, when he semi-accidentally, in a moment of high emotion, discovers that he can go so fast that he sort of breaks through the normal world and finds himself in a place where he can eff- effectively time travel. And given that the great sort of formative tragedy of his life was the the murder of his mother at a young age and his father's conviction for same, he is obviously very tempted to think, well, maybe there's a chance here to change the past. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you know it, that has effects on a lot more than he bargained for. Yes. Which it's brings like us he's into, never watched a film. It's like he's never watched a film. I think the problem is he's, he's watched the wrong films, perhaps. But he comes into contact with uh, an alternative universe, younger self of himself. He also comes into contact with uh, Michael Keaton's Batman, where he expected to find Ben Affleck's Batman. And so yes. he realises that this is a, a wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff has happened and uh, he now needs to try and figure out a way to put things right. Hence the film. Hence the film. Hence, so this is, yes, another multiverse superhero film. Um, it is not the best one this month. But that is, you know, not... That yeah. is not uh, a criticism particularly because it's still an okay film, I think. It is um, much, much better than we maybe expected given all the fuss about it. I think Muschietti's done a really good job of 
giving us action scenes that we haven't seen a million times before, almost giving them a kind of Looney Tunes edge, uh, a really kind of cartoonish uh, look to some of the stuff that Barry does. There's a spectacular opening one that I'm not going to not going to get into mm, too much. Mm. And that kind of helps to keep things rolling along. I thought there were some CG problems in this film. I think some of it is yes. definitely a, a choice to make certain things look very unreal. Other things just seem like maybe they were rushed, which they is ironic time. For, yeah. A, yeah. for a Flash movie. If only they could have gone back. If only they could have gone back and had a bit more time on them. Um, and, and, you know, not everyone maybe gets as much time as as you would like uh, to make an impression, I think Sasha Cayley, who's uh, you know it's it's been reported, is announced here as Supergirl, doesn't get enough time to make an impact. But what's here is is pretty fun, and I think better than many recent DC movies. It's quite bittersweet though, isn't it? Because it's it's ten years of the mm. DC EU this year, and as we go into yeah. its twilight moments, this is what essentially the penultimate really film of the DC EU, and it feels like they finally hit their stride just as they're shuffling off this mortal coil like this actually feels like if all of the DCEU movies had had this amount of flair to them we'd be a lot sadder to mm. see it depart like it feels like they actually nailed it with this like he was always like the comic relief he was the Joker from from Justice League and I thought you know despite obviously no, the, the speed the, the Joker from Justice League oh. was John thank you, thank you. Uh, you know I, 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 despite obviously having the award winning uh, Speed Force sequence in that film who can forget the Oscar winning uh, Oscar winning Speed Force, <laughs> Speed Force sequence. sequence dear god in heaven uh, he clearly went back in time to make that happen but uh you know, despite that, I kind of felt like his character was a bit redundant to it all. I never warmed to him. I didn't think he was great. Whereas in this, I actually felt like I liked that character, both versions of that character. And I think that at the core of this film is an emotional journey rather than just the age-old CGI fuckathon, although that exists as well. Yeah. Uh, and I thought they nailed the characterization, they nailed the emotional beats, they nailed the action, and they do some really interesting, fun, outrageous things which you can do when you're playing with a multiverse. And, and Helen kind of alluded to this as well, that if we hadn't already had a great multiverse film, you know, frankly, the other year, and then had another one this month, <laughs> this film would seem incredible. I think some of its thunder is lost because other people well, are doing it first and better. It's not just that. It's that this film, and you know, that's not put too fine a point on it, that's not beat around the bush, Spider-Verse, across the Spider-Verse, yeah. share a lot of the same DNA. Yeah. The storylines are fairly similar in some places. Some of the actions that certain characters perform <laughs> in both movies are <laughs> pretty much identical. It's so weird. It's like it's like Deep Impact and Armageddon being released a week apart mm. rather than a, a couple of months apart or White House Down and, and uh, Olympus Has Fallen. Uh, but these films are obviously developed you know, separate from each other uh, on parallel tracks so yeah. that it's just one of those things. This is the way the multiverse works, I guess. And this is an interesting one because yes, there's the Ezra Millerness, and and I genuinely for a while thought that this movie would not get released. Mm. As did I. I did At the I mean. height of their, their problems, their troubles, shall we say, uh, I genuinely thought that there were two ways that Warner Brothers could go with this movie. One was they would recast at great expense and then reshoot at even greater expense. <laughs> uh, two was to swallow it whole and just go, you know what, we're not going to release it because... Tax right we, we have, Yeah, precisely. Uh, but I think that was maybe just too expensive to do. Uh, three was to just kind of write it out and see what happens and then have faith in the movie because the movie was, it was good and they knew they had a good movie. And they decided to do the latter. 
So then it's tricky. So then you, the movie comes out and you have to assess the movie on the movies on, the, on its own terms, right? Uh, and what was interesting, a couple of months ago, they were so confident in this film that they screened at the CinemaCon in Vegas and they got a whole bunch of, of journalists, most of whom are geek-friendly press, very, very excited indeed and, and saying, saying great things. Uh, and I think the truth is it's maybe not quite as good as those initial glowing reviews were, but it is still a very, very good very fun superhero very fun. film yeah. that does a lot of really interesting things. It's quite playful with the time travel thing. It does a really interesting thing in realizing that for a lot of people, Ezra Miller's performance in Justice League, whichever whatever version of Justice League you want to take, whether it's Joss Whedon's misbegotten version or there is the Zack Snyder version, which I genuinely really like, their performance can be quite variable. There have been times I've watched Justice League and go, okay, they've absolutely nailed the tone here. They've got this, this is a very, very self-important, very pompous, very, very self-serious thing, and they're going to puncture that mm. at every possible opportunity. Then, weirdly, there'll be times I'll watch maybe the next scene or even I'll watch the film again and going, I'm not sure this feels like a little bit like an actor who's not entirely sure of which tone to hit. Yeah. So they're mugging shamelessly and they're a bit annoying as a result. This movie, I think, does a really interesting thing in that it knows that a lot of people find this version, this take on Barry Allen quite annoying and quite hyper. And they make him the wise old man of the the combination of the pairing. So they pair him up with another Barry Allen who's even younger and even stupider. <laughs> and even more annoying. And even more annoying and has this laugh. <laughs> this laugh that he does. Uh, but that combination works really, really well because it makes our Barry Allen mature really, really quickly in front of our eyes. And they also give Barry Allen, they also give him a really genuinely affecting arc. You know, this is a movie that I think does a lot of things that are unconventional for a superhero film. There's no antagonist. Not really. There's a lot going on here, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, and, you know, it ends in a in a fairly, I would say, unusual way for for a movie like this it's not there is a great big of cg there is a lot of cg fuckathoning but it's also a really lovely emotional beat that ends the film i i also loved seeing michael keaton again i'll be honest that for me was the best sasha Kelly was there was was really good i think uh, michael shannon is back as zod um it's it's not going to trouble his top 10 greatest because he's barely in it um but uh but you know he's there by you know for 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 a gag, you know it's fine. Yeah, and then um, Zod's off. <laughs> um, but you know it's 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 a really good cast, I, and I think Muschietti did a really good job. Actually, I, I really do like that. I I don't love everything about it, but I think no, it's um, nor do I. we'll get into in the in the spoiler. But yeah, I mean, there's stuff in the third act that I just I'm, I'm appalled by. Yeah, <laughs> quite there, there's a couple of things I don't I don't love in there, and also yeah. there is a post credit sting. Is it worth sitting through the credits if you need the loo? I would say absolutely not. I think it's one of the most inessential post-credits things I've ever set to see. Yes. Um, but it does exist, so you now you know it's there. Well, listen, there's a lot to talk about with the spoiler special. Uh, we just need to figure out whether we're going to do one. Um, but, you know, again, just to reiterate, if you have issues with the lead actor, totally understand. Um, but we judge the movie on its own merits, and I found this to be a ton of fun. And so I gave it four stars. And, you know, it might be on the lower end of the four-star spectrum for me, but four stars nonetheless. Uh, so four stars then for The Flash. And now we move into 
Extraction 2, which is on Netflix and sees the return of Chris Hemsworth as Tyler Rake, <laughs> the one-man army or the one-army man, one of the two, uh, who is, he's back. He's back, 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 folks. Uh, he looked like he was a goner at the end of the first extraction, but yeah, no, he, died, he is back. But he got better. He did. <laughs> yeah. He chiliost. He did. Chip chiliost. Chip chiliost. Uh, yes, this is Sam Hargrave's sequel to Extraction, which dragged us from our misery in the pandemic and gave us a nice action blockbuster to watch mm. in our living rooms, which was lovely. Uh, and he's back. He's back despite having died at the end of the first film. And and what better person to do that than Chris Hemsworth? Uh, it's nice to see him dust himself off and, you know, rehabilitate himself really quickly and be back in the game. Uh, this essentially sees him pulled back into having, after a, after a very brief retirement uh, to a nice cabin in the woods, he is pulled back into the game when uh, a representative of his ex-wife, played here by Idris Elba, uh, asks him to do one last job. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's the just, representative, not the ex-wife. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird like the, a representative of his ex-wife played yes. by Idris Elba. His ex-wife played by Idris Elba. Idris uh, Elba has got incredible range. He does have range. He does have range. He play anything. Uh, Yes, but uh, his marriage to uh, Chris Hemsworth did not last long. But uh, Tyler Rake is pulled back in to do a jailbreak. Hence the first of three extended outstanding action sequences. Now, you know, you can get bogged down in the plot here. And yes, there's some stuff about his past and his, you know, his role as a father and, and how his marriage ended. And actually, there's actually quite a lot of emotional heft to the little character development there is. But this isn't a film concerned really with character. And it's not a film concerned with story. It is a film concerned with action. That it has a story you feel is a little bit maybe something that they added at the end. It was really just like, <laughs> here are three amazing action sequences that we're going to play consecutively. And if we could just have a little bit of dialogue here and there to tie them together, that's great. But that genuinely is what I wanted from this film because the action in this film is outstanding. Each of these three action sequences have very different flavors. They are very long. They are very, very well choreographed and beautifully shot uh, and never, ever get boring in the same way that the John Wick action sequences don't. There's enough variety in the way he's killing the shit out of a lot of people uh, to keep you interested and to keep you engaged all the way through. The first one, which is the one that I think is famous by this point is the, the jailbreak which features a fake and extended one which is as spectacular to see in full as it was in brief in the trailer uh, and sees him going through this prison to rescue his former sister-in-law uh, while killing as few people as possible actually showing a certain amount of restraint yeah yeah, a little bit of restraint a little bit tiny bit of restraint okay look he kills a lot of people but he doesn't kill everyone and that's the important thing exactly uh, you know there are then ongoing sequences while let's just say the people there are people unhappy that he broke someone out of prison and they take issue with him, hence the body count continues mm. to climb. I mean, look, this was always silly. The first film was silly. This is a lot sillier than the first film, but the action is also a lot better than the first film mm. as well. And it had great action. And there are just wonderful moments in this where a fairly routine you know, operation like dispatching a number of henchmen is kind of elevated through sort of clever choreography, intro introduction of, I don't know, gym equipment, uh, or or like a time-sensitive thing, like someone sliding off a roof and him needing to fight his way through people to get to that person to save them. Uh, there is a train, there are cars, there are helicopters, there are garden tools. <laughs> no one is killed by a rake, but someone is killed by a fork. Hmm. So, I mean, There's look, a man on fire. There's a man a on trident. fire. <laughs> I mean, they literally killed someone almost with a trident. So it's, I mean, it's, it's it's got, it's got something for everyone, I like to think. But I thought this Especially was... Especially if you're a sociopath or a psychopath. Or into gardening, you know, either way. Yeah. So uh, well, Same thing. It's quite. Uh, it's, it's great. It is great. It's not, you know, 
narratively complex. But uh, neither was Commando. But neither was Commando. Oh, I'm that's, that's your... That's my bar. That's yeah. your bar. That's okay. my bar. Jenny. For one-man army movies, Yeah. Commando. At no point does anyone smear ice cream on their nose or, you know, feed a deer or carry a log, actually, for that and matter. And there's but, no so. steel drums in the soundtrack, which is a huge shame. That is. That is a huge shame. There's barely a soundtrack, to be honest. I mean, the, there is a score yep. by uh, Henry Jackman. Rake and- one, bad guys nil. That wasn't what After I meant. After extra time. No, I meant like a musical score. Oh, I it was see. a musical score by Henry Jackman and Alex Belcher, but it, like, it, it drops out for an entire minute's like. That's because they're riddled with bullets. What do you need, like, a rhythms you know, provided by drums when we've yeah. got rhythms provided by machine guns 100%. kind of a thing? So mm. it, it's kind of minimalist in that respect, at least. I thought it was a great, great villain performance from, and apologies for my pronunciation, Tornika uh, Gorgriciani um, as Zurab. Yes. Who's the villain who's really charismatic and really quite scary? You can tell he's evil because he has evil tattoos on his face. Well, I mean, like a lot of people in this film have evil tattoos, but they are all evil. So that is maybe true. Having right said that, Tyler has big old spear tattoos on his neck. So. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Exactly. What can we really judge? It's almost like you shouldn't judge people by their appearance, James. <laughs> um, <laughs> look, I, I, I had a blast with this. I wrote the Empire Review. And, oh, did you? Uh, yeah. I did, yeah, and gave it four stars. And uh, huh? some people will probably think I'm crazy for doing so, but I just, I had so much fun. I think as a, as an action movie, yes. it is a very good action movie. It is glorious. And there are other films out there if you need things like exactly. story and character. So it's Yeah, funny. if you want like genuine, you know, relatable human misery, like, <laughs> then look you know, elsewhere. Absolutely. There are other great movies. Yeah. But it's, right. yeah, yeah, it's loads of fun. Loads and loads and loads of fun. Watch it. I mean, it's in, your, it's, in the, it's in your living room. It's on Netflix. There is no excuse not to watch it. Unless, of course, you don't have Netflix or a living room. Fair enough. You didn't consider that. I didn't consider that. Yeah. Check your privilege. <laughs> Check your privilege. <laughs> um, yes, I thought this was also fun. Uh, I'm not sure if it's better than the first movie for me, but it's hard to argue with the action sequences in this film, largely because they're so loud and so long that you can't <laughs> They wouldn't hear you. They, they wouldn't, wouldn't hear, hear you. you. Yeah, but the, You'd the be one, like, the, you're a shit! And they'd be like, I can't hear you. The Wonder is great. I think the first third of the Wonder and then the third third of the Wonder are better than the second third of the wow, Wonder. Okay. But the Wonders are very, very good indeed. And it, yeah, it's interesting because like, this was written by Joe Russo and as was the first. And he seems to have a real kind of jonesing for... I, I think he's a Commando fan. I really do. I think who he is. Isn't? Who, who isn't? is not? Who among us can say they are not a Commando fan? Yes. Uh, I'm not we're sure back to negative attraction again. We are back to that. It's true. <laughs> I'm not sure that would be the first line of my bio, if yeah. I'm honest. I'd be fascinated to read his script for this because it probably just says, you know, opens, bang, ends. <laughs> That's just it. <laughs> Was it George Lucas's script direction? They, they fight. fight. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, they fight, yeah. There is action, film ends. So apparently uh, uh, Sam Hargrave told me that in the screenplay, uh, Joe Russo wrote, and so we begin the greatest wonder in cinema history. <laughs> Which is, you know, that's setting your stall out, isn't yes, it? That's it basically is. saying, all right, Hargrave, step up to the plate. And while I don't quite think they got there, it's a pretty lofty goal to aim for. And They uh, literally set Hemsworth on fire. They do set Hemsworth on fire. So. Yeah, they did. And yeah, apparently they did. In this sort of uh, Pink Floyd wish you were here styley. So he was never actually in danger of being consumed by the flames. Uh, we've been Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> oh boy. If that, if that had happened. He tastes Crisp, great. Crispy Hemsworth. Which of the Hollywood Chris's? do you think would taste the best if you were to absolutely not answering that question cook Thank their you know. flesh at a barbecue no nope. Pratt, Pratt Pine Evans or Hemsworth Pratt Pratt why yeah. 
I don't know. I just, they'd I just, all be stringy because they all exercise too much. I mean, That's they're all like they're all the ripped. Point. That's absolutely true. They'd be they'd be very wiry and muscular. The meat but, would so. slide off the ribs, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. I I refuse any further discussion of this. Just in case, just in case, just in case. A, a Hollywood serial killer starts oh picking off the Hollywood Chris's and, and eating them, and then someone goes, "Ah, Your Honor, Exhibit A, the Empire Podcast." <laughs> Obviously, we should uh, point out to our listeners that please do not eat the Hollywood Chris's. Um, should go without saying, but apparently needs to be said. Uh, four stars then for Extraction 2. Hey, you remember you were asking for a film with story and characters? Yes. Well, I've got one for you. Go on then. It's Pretty Red Dress. Ooh, tell me more. I will. Uh, so this is a fantastic film. It may be my film of the week. It is written and directed by Dion Edwards, whose debut feature this is, uh, and it is terrific. So it is. it concerns uh, a man called Travis, played by Natey Jones, who uh, is a British film set in London. Uh, he is released from prison. He's been put into prison for about a year for for dealing drugs. He was he he went off the beaten path of the uh, um, and got involved with some bad types. Uh, he gets out of prison. Uh, reunites with his girlfriend, the mother of a child, and the girlfriend is played by Alexandra Burke. Wow. Former X Factor winner, making her movie debut uh, here. And she is a supermarket worker who is also a... uh, an actor and a singer trying to make her way as an actor and a singer. She's auditioning to play Tina Turner in uh, in a musical on stage, which means we get to hear quite a bit of Alexandra Burke singing. Tina Turner songs, so that's not bad at all either. And they have a young daughter called Kanisha, played by Temelola Olutumbasan. And uh, again, apologies if I've mispronounced that. Uh, and she's in school. She's a teenager. She's feisty. She's on her last strike in terms of expulsion. And uh, she's going through some stuff as well. So I've described this movie to you. You think you know where this movie's going to go, right? Travis Maybe. is going to get back into drug dealing. No. It's all going to be very, very miserable. I hope not. Um, and it's going to be a misery fest for about two hours, right? That's that's pretty much where you, you would think this movie would go, right? If convention dictated. Mm. Thankfully, convention does not dictate uh, because uh, Dion Edwards is doing something very, very different and very, very clever here in that Travis has a secret side to him which he begins to indulge. And... The pretty red dress of the title is a dress that he saves up to buy, demeaning himself by working for his dickhead older brother uh, in a, in his restaurant. Saves up some money to buy this red dress for his girlfriend so she can audition to play Tina Turner. But he is transfixed by the red dress for himself as well mm-hmm. because Travis likes to wear women's clothing and dress up in makeup and all the fineries. And... You would think it is only a matter of time before this is discovered and sets the cat amongst the pigeons. And it is, and it does. And when it does, things go awry. But not in the depressing, wrist-slitting fashion that I had expected. This is a wonderful film filled with compassion and humanity and surprises. There is a moment in here that uh, I would love to have seen this with an audience rather than on my computer uh, because if I'd seen this with an audience, I think there's a, a moment in here that might have elicited the biggest gasp in in uh, cinema the, the, for many a year. Uh, I, I My hand went to my face like, oh no, oh, like that. 
I thought this was absolutely terrific. I loved it. And, you know, it makes you feel, makes you live with these characters. You you get to love all of them. You get to love Travis. You get to love Candice. You get to love Kanisha. The performances across the board are absolutely extraordinary. And we gave us four stars. Amazing. And it's about this guy kind of coming to terms with, but he doesn't quite know what he is. And he's a very, very masculine guy mm. in all but one respect. Yeah. So uh, you know, he will front up to someone if he thinks that they're coming on to his, his girlfriend or if they're antagonizing his daughter. But in this one other thing, this one other aspect of his life, it just happens to be a huge aspect of his life. And so he's coming to terms with it. What am I? What am you know, what does this mean for me yeah. that I want to do this? And then when Candace finds out, what does this mean for her? Uh, you know, she's she's very conflicted about it all, uh, about how it makes her feel. Is she re- repulsed by it, appalled by it, or even slightly turned on by it? Mm-hmm. And then it has a repercussions as well on his daughter. It is Absolutely terrific. I was completely and utterly drawn in by it. It's one of my one favorite films of the year. It's one of the best films of the year for me. Uh, we gave us one four stars. Amazing. I'd go five. Amazing. I'd go five. Can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's really, really great. It's uh, out in cinemas this week and I think we'll soon be on the BFI player. And we're also going to do Greatest Days real quick. Hells Bells. Yeah, so this is the movie of the Take That Jukebox musical. And they're obviously, I think, hoping for probably a Mamma Mia effect. Um, so Ashleen B plays Rachel, who is a nurse in London. And she wins a contest to go to a reunion concert by The Boys, which is a very thinly veiled, uh, just a, a band of beautiful young men who are kind of Take That. Mm. They, they they certainly recorded all of Take That songs in this reality. And um, she kind of dithers for a bit because she... she clearly is very excited to have won the competition. She's a big fan. But she wants to go with her old friends who she hasn't been in touch with for years. So the question becomes, is she going to basically woman up and get in touch with them and see them again? Clearly something happened in their past. We're not quite sure what. And uh, and go to this concert. And is that going to sort of set her life on, on track in a way? Because she's been sort of dodging uh, marriage proposals from her boyfriend, played by Mark Wooten, and um, and isn't quite sure what she wants out of life. So this is directed by Ko- uh, Koki Gidroik and uh, written by Tim Firth. And it's based on the stage musical, which was kind of around for a bit and you know didn't last like Mamma Mia has. And I feel like there's a reason for that because the the issue I had with this was not with the cast. I think they're all really good. And I think there's spectacular matching of old and young people playing the same roles. I think the young actors are brilliant in these roles. I think there's quite a clever sort of um, and quite moving technique where basically Rachel's home life as a teenager is very unhappy and, you know, her her parents are arguing quite violently all the time. She feels very unsettled. She has to take care of her younger brother a lot of the time. And she escapes into these fantasies of the boys and she basically hallucinates them around her at home, kind of protecting her and helping her. And and it's quite a a moving way to illustrate what these kind of non-threatening boys mean to teenage girls who love them. You know, I think it's a I think it's a really, really clever device. It's a little bit overused, but it's a really, really strong way into this film. The big issue I had with this is that the songs don't often help. The songs don't always drive the plot or the emotion of the film forward, which is what they're supposed to do in a musical. Some of them are just quite bad fits for the moment they're trying to describe. But also what you have is a song that's a good fit and a great song. Like I was never a massive Take That fan, but like Back For Good and Never Forget are utterly great pop songs, right? I forgot it. And Back For Good is 
I think basically it's it's sung by a series of couples and the wrong person in the couple is singing the wrong bit of the song consistently through that whole performance. And it, I find it really genuinely quite alienating <laughs> because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make emotional sense because the wrong person is singing that thing, I think. Um, and, and there's a few moments like that where you're like, that doesn't fit the moment that you're trying to get across here. And and. So it doesn't work terribly well as a musical. So the music is fine, the cast are fine, the acting is great, but the music doesn't help the story. And that, to me, was the big issue. I did find it emotional, though. I did think it it kind of, it made me feel things just because maybe I was around at the right era. Hmm. Um, and you want the bat for good. I don't care about the band. I don't, I mean, there is an inevitable cameo, spoiler, but like, I don't care about them at all. I do think they have, like I say, two great, great, great songs and, and a few other solid ones. But I just didn't think it matched up. But anyway, really, I genuinely loved the loved the performances, loved the cast. I, I just think that the musical it was based on is maybe so not You'd just have been right. happier if they'd used New Kids on the Block. Oh no, I wasn't into. Th- I, I I had cool tastes as a teenager. All right, I might not be cool now. Helen saw Nirvana. I know I didn't. I had tickets to see Nirvana, but then, oh, same here. But then there was the incident in Rome, and it was delayed into the middle of our GCSEs. We had to sell them back, and then he, he actually he was found dead on the day we should have seen him. I, I still have my ticket for that. Ex- I was supposed to be at that exact gig. I wow. still have that ticket. The Nirvana musical I'm all for, by the way. But uh, um, that would but, be yeah. an interesting one, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be a, perhaps a little a uh, little less chirpy. Than this one, I, I didn't hate this. I thought this was pretty good. We gave it two stars. I, you know, I could have been talked up to a three. I, my my only issue really was that the music didn't work in story wise, but like you know, mm. cast wise, acting wise, and a lot of the kind of emotional stuff I thought was really solid. All right, so two stars then for greatest days. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by some good peeps from Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson film, one of two uh, coming out this year because he wants to own the 20s. (laughs) I can't remember who the three people are, but I'm pretty sure Jeffrey Wright is one of them and Brian Cranston is another. Sweet. And I think it might be Adrian Brody. Nice. That's not too bad. And that interview was recorded at the Cannes Film Festival. Cannes! (laughs) Which is a film festival brought together entirely to celebrate the life of... Khan Noonien Singh. Khan Noonien Singh. Not to be confused with La'an Noonien Singh, who is his descendant and star of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which I'm currently obsessed with. I would would love to see a Star Trek Wrath of Cannes musical. Oh, I would. That would under, be I would be first in line for that. That'd be amazing. Imagine how sad oh, the Spock death song would be. It would. It would make all that shit in Les Mis about you know mm. a little rain. You know who would have to do the soundtrack? Mm-hmm. Who? Genesis. Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Yes, they do. Yes, they, they do. Yes, they do. For the one. <laughs> That's your version of a sad song? His was the most it has to be uplifting. human <laughs> of all the souls Why I've encountered on my travels. Why are you both doing it as Klingon opera? <laughs> do you think Klingon opera is the best way to do this? I yeah. mean, I'm open to the discussion, Absolutely. but... Absolutely. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Make it happen. We're available to be yeah. commissioned. If you want to write, I'm write, happy to write the music and the lyrics uh, and the book because uh, I believe there's a lot of money in that. Bing, kerching, kerching. And uh, bring these two losers along with me as well. Uh, wow. to, to provide ballast. Anyway, 
who's on next week's show? Yeah, those Asteroid City people yep. and maybe someone else. All right, okay. So it's time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Glasto bound. Yeah. Glasto bound. She's going to get off her face on disco biscuits. Um, <laughs> I don't know what those are. It's Helen O'Hara. Ripped yeah. to the tits on space dust. <laughs> I may have a chocolate bar. It's true. It's true. I have to pack. No. I'll be there in my wellies. Some extra Earl Grey for me, please. <laughs> but toodaloo, have fun, people. And if you are in Glastonbury, do come along and say hello. We've got I've got some yeah. really cool um, guests coming in to do Q and A's. Nia da Costa and Nida Manzura, for example. That's good. That's Asif good. Kapadia, you know. That's good. It's going great. It's going to be great. Good. Yeah, so, there we go. Come along. Come along to that. Come along to that. And hey, listen, if you run a major festival and you want to have us come along uh, and be part of that and do a live show, then Absolutely. get in touch. Yeah. Get in touch. I'd be more than happy to do an Empire podcast from uh, from Glastonbury, a live Empire uh, <laughs> on, the, on the pyramid stage. On the pyramid stage, naturally. On yes. Saturday night. Yes. <laughs> Piss off, Grohl. You've had your shot. It's me. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and the one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And of all the souls I've encountered in my travels, James Dyer's <laughs> was the most <laughs> human. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, James. Goodbye. Goodbye. Anyway, that's it for me. I'm off to write the book, music and lyrics for Khan. Buried alive, buried alive, buried alive on Botany Bay. Buried alive, buried alive, buried alive on Botany Bay. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And the one, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. It's not really a breakout pop hit, is it? More of a book number. Yeah. Do we need an Into Darkness verse? No, no one ever does. <laughs> no, we don't. No, we don't. We just don't. We just don't. Now, thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye-bye. Oh.